I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I bought it out and a wardrobe door But I, I'm still seeking to Hello, and welcome to another loquacious episode of Seeking Tumness, the podcast that scours contemporary YA fiction searching for tips on how to ward off the imminent apocalypse. On alternate episodes, we read books of yesteryear and marvel at how nice it must have been to not have to worry about the impending death of our planet. <laughs> My name's Patrick, uh, fill in coast, despite the uh, fact that Laurie is actually here. Uh, I'm joined by my co-hosts, the man with a plan, namely a bunker and 470 cans of extra cheesy spaghetti, Laurie. Hello there. Where did you locate that word before? In the dictionary, a word of the day. <laughs> I try and integrate them every time we do a recording. And the man with nice cans, their Sennheiser PXE 550s, Keith. <laughs> Hello. Damn, I thought you were going a bit below the shoulders there. <laughs> I mean, they're all nice. <laughs> the good thing about your assets, Keith, is they're developing over time. <laughs> <laughs> they're fully matured, you might say. We're all in that boat. <laughs> Tonight, on this episode between episodes, a mini-sode, a 0.5-a-sode as a prelude to the big 5-0-a-sode that will be coming up soon, I thought I'd speak to a couple of recent YA books that have crossed the ST desk recently and just wallow a bit in their misery. I speak of The Buried Ark by James Bradley, book two of the Change trilogy. And we spoke to James about book one last year, so you may have a listen, you may wish to have a listen to that episode if you haven't already, uh, because it was quite a bit of fun. And after that, I thought I would dive into Hive by A.J. Betts. What do these two books have in common? Well, they're both wonderful recent Australian books that fit into a broad sci-fi slash dystopia mould, and so I think they sit nicely together. Guys, what did you want from book two of The Change? Did you have any particular thoughts about it or, or desires or, I don't know, directions that you wanted to see the book go in, questions you wanted answered? Did you actually read it, Laurie? Or? No, I, I did read it. I read it right to the end. It only finished today. And oh, it doesn't quite answer your question the way you asked it, but I realised when I got to the very end of the book that what I would have wanted most of all was not another desperate cliffhanger ending. <laughs> <laughs> I did touch on that in my review, but yeah, unfortunately we are left with enough another cliffhanger, or fortunately, depending on how you look at these things. I know Laurie is, you know, sometimes concerned that the books that he likes aren't going to be finished to the extent that he would like them to be, uh, and so cliffhangers are a bit of a worry. I'm pretty sure James foretold of that when we spoke to him last about this book. The, the good thing I thought is, and I've only read the first 50 pages of the second book so far, is that it gets straight into answering the cliffhanger from book one. So I'd imagine book three will probably be very similar. It has that going for it. We're not going to be waiting for the next 15 years like, say, uh, The Doors of Stone from Patrick Rothfuss or a Robert Jordan kind of extended, protracted, fleshing out of the series. I wasn't going to read 
page one because, as you said, Keith, it, it kind of uh, hits the ground running and dives into the spoiler for the cliffhanger ending of uh, the first book. And so I, I thought I might just say what I thought about it and, and then perhaps see if you have anything to add, Laurie. Sure. So in the second book of the Change Trilogy, we pick up where we left off with the silent invasion. In fact, exactly where we left off in the moments after the first book's cliffhanger ending. Uh, it was a bit of a revelation, so as I said, I'm not going to spoil it, but suffice to say that the second book continues to follow Callie as she learns more about the change and the events that led to her father's disappearance way back in the day. One thing that I really liked about the book was that it wasn't afraid to keep building on the world of the silent invasion, expanding the scope of the series and setting up what is probably going to be a pretty jam-packed finale. Uh, I touched on this briefly in a, a, a write-up that I did on the website, but as a long-time fan of trilogies, I've often found myself nodding off a little bit during the middle book. It's neither here nor there, um, too far from the beginning of the series to engage in significant world-building. It's pretty much all set up, the groundwork is laid, uh, but it's too far from the end to actually start tying the loose ends together in any kind of satisfying way. Uh, does that ring true to your experience of fantasy sci-fi trilogies, Laurie, as a, a fellow connoisseur? Oh, it's tough. I think it really depends on the series. Some some second books I've found are actually better than the first books. Too much groundwork being laid? Well, sometimes they just take the shift in a different direction. Imagine uh, maybe it's a bit like studio albums. You know, you've got some poppy band that releases something that the studio uh, or the label created and then after a bit of success then they can actually strike out and make their own art and sometimes that's a hell of a lot more interesting than the generic pulp stuff. So yeah, I think it really depends on the series but you're right, it does happen quite often and I think even Harry Potter suffers from that a little bit. That's a bit bold, bold claim right there. <laughs> Wasn't it book two or book three of Harry Potter that's a bit naff while the rest of them are pretty good? I think generally people are a little bit down on the Chamber of Secrets. I don't know how fair that is, but it's a thing. It's probably built upon, like it's just too much expectation built up. Depending on how long it is between the first book and the second book, sometimes you have a little bit of forgetsies about what happened with the characters. But this one, you're right, it sort of, it, it dives straight in. It's like... Uh, I don't know, a cliffhanger from Preacher Season 1 or Westworld or something. You, you really know what mm. was happening last season. It's burned fresh in your memory and, uh, and hits the ground running. So, yeah. I think uh, that was definitely one of its strengths. I feel like uh, Bradley negotiated that middle child territory pretty well here in that it's engaging as a bridge between the series bookends, uh, but it also has a lot of value in and of itself. The pace is pretty good and there are some moments of actual genuine tension when Callie gets closer to this bizarre, unsettling organism that is the change. And there's a pretty healthy dose of action as well. There are some new characters introduced who are compelling for a variety of reasons. And in classic sci-fi fashion, we get to see how the end of society as we know it really brings out the base elements of humanity uh, in all its shades of light and dark and grey somewhere in the middle, which is where the book spends a lot of time. I think that's why I found it a pretty compelling read. Like The Silent Invasion, it's rooted in the difficult reality that the world around us is changing, uh, but it's not particularly didactic or anything like that. It's stark, um, a matter-of-fact exploration of what is a grim future, and it has all the appropriate sci-fi garnishes, and I find that pretty difficult to resist. I railed on the book blog um, against giving star ratings, but because it's our tradition here on the podcast, I 
am going to give it four stars. How do you feel about all that? Do you have any different thoughts? I was a little bit challenged in the early parts of the book. Once, and I'll try and avoid spoilers too much. Yeah, I, I tried so hard to avoid spoilers, <laughs> so so don't <laughs> blow a hole in the side of my unleaking spoiler-free ship. Well, there's a very sci-fi type uh, element to the book that um, yeah. allows... Uh, the main character, what's her name? I've forgotten. Callie. <laughs> Callie. It, that allows Callie to, I guess, connect with her, the world that's changing around her. And I guess the challenge that I had was that James, you know, first name basis, seeing as we've, we've talked on the podcast before. James. <laughs> Great friends. Sort of, James. Yeah, beat the drum explaining it a little too much. You know, maybe because I've read so much sci-fi and fantasy um, the particular mechanic that I'm talking about, you know, within a few sentences, I'd sort of picked it up, but maybe yeah. because it's written for, I don't know, a teen audience that might not necessarily have the same level of exposure to that. Having said that, I still think there are some good questions floating around that particular sci-fi element and the the processes of the change. Don't get me wrong. I really enjoyed uh, hearing about... Uh, it's really tough to talk without spoilers, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Only 50 pages in. It's kind of what I've been getting so far from you two. It's like I'm trying to understand what, what happens next because I'm enjoying it. I, I didn't get any of that feeling, Laurie, that you did there. Like 50 pages isn't quite a quarter of the way in, so maybe I will. Or maybe it's just that I'm not that audience that is conditioned to sci-fi. Yeah, perhaps. For me, there were maybe some familiar ideas there, but I'm definitely not at the level of sci-fi literacy that Laurie is, and so I, I certainly wasn't thinking, uh, kind of move on. I understand this already. I know how to build a fusion core and pilot it to Mars. <laughs> Everyone does. This is basic science, people. Don't forget your potatoes. Very important. <laughs> the other vague criticism I had of the book is that book one was a bit of an emotional roller coaster ride because you felt really invested in the characters, Callie and her little sister and Matt, was it? Yep. Mm-hmm. And Matt, who she met along the way and became an integral part of the story. You got really attached to those characters and the events of the book then, uh, I guess, took you through some emotional highs and lows. But in this book... The new characters that it introduced, I didn't quite feel so attached to. Um, knowing that Callie's sister, mm, Gracie, yeah, Gracie, but I was just trying to think of how to frame it. It's just steering it in a spoiler-free kind of fashion. Oh, so difficult. But anyway, okay, yeah, I understand. I may have set us up for failure here, but I thought, given that it's <laughs> sort of the middle book, we'd not only be spoiling one book but two books and a series that's currently in progress and that, so I thought it might yeah. be better to kind of avoid it but no you know. that's fair enough I guess because of the journey that happened in book one and mm, you, you had a certain relationship to the characters and you wanted certain themes explored and certain people to continue building on those relationships that, and that's right and it, it was a bit of a detour the change to the cast of characters yeah it didn't imbue in me that same connection I guess so that was challenging but that being said there were still some interesting characters and like you were saying different shades to those characters they weren't quite evil they weren't quite good yeah it might be one of the reasons why it was a little bit more difficult to connect because the agenda of some of the characters in this second book was uh, shady 
at at best. And right. uh, so, yeah, I mean, I may be understating it a little bit there, but what can you do? What did you think of the pacing, Pat? I actually thought the pacing was really good. I, I got really invested in the book and I, I smashed it very quickly. And so I kind of consumed it as one whole yep. rather than drawing it out over any kind of period of time. And I thought in that context, it worked really well. It flowed really nicely. Uh, it, it moved from a couple of different settings and then really hit the accelerator towards the end before coming to that abrupt cliffhanger kind of halt, which <laughs> obviously you, you're expecting once you realise that you only had you know five pages in your hand and it wasn't looking like there was going to be a clear resolution of the situation at that point. If the book was three parts, let's say the meeting, the journey, the looming disaster or the, the, the simmering pot maybe, yeah. the simmering pot part of it felt really quick to me compared to the other parts of the book. Mm. Like It didn't seem like there was quite enough time to develop the tension that blew up towards the end. Mm. How would you uh, star it if starring you were to do? Oh, I still really enjoyed it. Remember, Pat, we don't give stars to books. We give, you know, rubber <laughs> chickens and all sorts of other things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. Uh, I don't know. I'd probably give it a three and a half to four. Yep. I enjoy the first book more. Uh, I really enjoyed this book as well. It, the pacing was just spectacular. I mean, like, the book flew, but I'm really, really desperate to read the next one, so... Having uh, received the first two for free, I might be shelling out for the third one. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think this series could ever be made as an Australian television show? I guess there were two parts to that question. Do I think the the story is doable from from a TV perspective? Would it make an interesting show. I think absolutely, yeah. I would, I would watch it. I would enjoy it. I think it would be fantastic. Do I think the Australian TV industry is in a position to take a risk on something like this or to, to do something like this right now? Probably not. Mm, I thought more from the perspective of the enormous budget required to make the, uh, the change look anything other than, I don't know. Dalek. What's a really crappy 3D show? Like even Doctor Who's budgets would be much higher than I think the Australian industry could afford because there's so much of it, right? It's not just uh, occasional glimpses of alien otherness. There's whole, in this book in particular, there's massive sections of the book that are almost exclusively in this alien type environment. It is a very alien kind of book across the board, yeah. I think it would be tough to do. I think it would potentially be quite expensive to do, but I, I also think it would be a really good, enjoyable type of show. So I, I would definitely be excited about it if it was in the pipeline. How would you feel if it was brought out by HBO and then uh, reconfigured to be in a, uh, an American story? Yeah, I think that's probably the, the more likely kind of situation for this sort of book, that it would be it would be adapted into an American setting, kind of like Big Little Lies, I guess, that would... In a fairly iconic, very distinctly Australian sort of piece, just being translated uh, and benefiting in a financial sense from that that translation, mm. I, I would still enjoy it. I would still watch it because you know I know where it came from. I know its true roots, and I would voice my OG fandom to anybody who 
anybody who showed the remotest interest. Which uh, leads me to the next book that I have read recently, which I thought I'd touch on very quickly and super quickly because you guys haven't actually read it. Uh, this is Hive by AJ Betts. And I thought I'd read you the first page, seeing as you haven't read it at all. Uh, and I can get a, a kind of virgin page one experience here, which we seldom have Ooh. because we have always heretofore um, actually read the book before we do the, the page one retrospective. So that being said, this is Hive, prologue. We had no word for ocean. Why would we? We knew nothing of the watery mass surrounding us. We didn't know water could be dark like that, heavy like that, that it was so big we might never touch its sides. We had no words for boat or land or sky. Why would we? To us, our world was everything and it finished at our walls. Nothing was beyond them. There was no ocean. How could we imagine there was? Sky. I think I dreamed of it once. Such a small word for a big thing. We had other words you haven't. More words for cool and warm, colours and light. Words for flowers and seeds, flavours and textures. Words for the water of the source. Words for cravings and hungers. Words for pain. There was no word for love, but that doesn't mean we didn't feel it. Why does everything need a name? Our world was this. A commons room surrounded by six hexagonal houses, each connected with a way. A corridor, you might call it. A small, enclosed bridge. Ways linked the houses and us all. Above the commons was a smaller house divided into nursery and sick room. Above that was the upper house for the council. It was the smallest house and the highest one, closest to God. My own house was the garden, and I shared it with 55 other people. This was our version of family. There were mentors for work, friends for company, aunts to make us tea and offer comfort. In the garden, we each had a purpose. We would crouch to turn the farm soil with our fingers, planting seedlings that would burrow down to fatten with hard vegetables. We would reach over A-frames or climb ladders to high lattices where we'd loop heavy vines drooping with tomatoes, grapes and beans. Amid the hydrostacks, we would lean in to tend the misted layers of herbs, peppers, beans and berries. I knew the garden best. Its farm and forest, walls and corners, ceilings and ways. But as beekeeper, I came to know the other houses too. I came to know too much, which has led me up here to your land and your sky and you, so eager for stories. All I can tell you is what I remember, in the words that I have. I'm here because of a drip, a drip I wasn't supposed to find. They thought, back then, I'd gone looking for a rogue bee. The truth is, I'm here because of the madness. What do you think, Keith? I'm really into it. I like the, the way of uh, introducing us to the differences of this I guess it's kind of this dystopian commune from the sounds of it. Yes, very much so. Yeah, through the differences in the language, which is a great way to differentiate. I'm really into it. Yeah, sounds great. Laurie, would you persist with that? Yes, I find myself asking questions. I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. What exactly did he say? Is he underground? Are they being told that the world doesn't exist upstairs or this is the entire world, but somehow he's escaped through the cracks and found the real world? What's going on? I need to know more. <laughs> I, I will tell you a little bit more about it. Uh, Haley, who is the narrator from whom, whom we've just heard, is a beekeeper in this small, highly structured society, the members of which are separated into different professions at birth. Um, so Haley's a beekeeper. 
Our chief amongst them is the judge who directs the day-to-day goings-on of the community, and at night, when everyone is locked inside and abed, the lights are lowered and God can roam the ways outside. The book is a snowball. You know, one day Haley has a headache, uh, which is a potential sign of madness, apparently, in this universe. Is it capital M madness? Um, it, it could be. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's stylized that way, but it could be. Okay. Uh, and madness is obviously a big no-no in this very tightly knit shelter. She goes to a certain spot uh, in a particular hallway that she finds alleviates the, uh, the pain under the pretense of hunting down a stray bee. There she spies a drip, which seems kind of out of place, because why would there be a drip when you have no concept of water outside of a particular confine? And potentially, that could just be a sign of madness. Suddenly, the questions of madness are overcome by very real events, and the whole carefully stacked deck of cards begins to wobble, and all hell kind of breaks loose. Uh, I really liked page one. Like you guys, I found it asked a lot of questions that I really wanted answers to, but the portions after that were a bit of a struggle and kind of unsettling. I reflected on that a fair bit because the writing is really good and ultimately I really liked the book, so I didn't understand why it was so difficult for me to kind of settle into it. And what I've realised is that the whole thing sits in this kind of uncanny valley where everything is really close to lifelike but not quite there. Uh, that uncanny valley being the terminology that people use when they're talking about AI or robots that are sort of human-like in their mannerisms or appearance, uh, but not quite all the way there. So instead of saying, wow, that's amazing, people get a little bit repulsed. Uh, I think that's probably a good tie-in to James Bradley's change-affected organisms too, who are still people or animals or whatever, but they've kind of taken this sideways step into something else that doesn't feel quite right. So uncanny is this book in a nutshell. The people live in a a cult-like atmosphere or a commune, as Keith said, but they don't know it because the whole little ecosystem is their entire universe. The entire population of the world is a few hundred people living in a handful of open spaces under these artificial lights. Their food and water are just these products of God, uh, and this God actually literally chills out in their creepy little village at night and like carries away dead people and that kind of thing. Their acceptance of that way of life is unsettling on this really fundamental level because it makes you ask some questions about what you would buy into psychologically if you didn't have this, the world experience to know better. Like if, if you were born into this bizarro underwater commune. I don't know what a spoiler! <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it's underwater, but I mean... <laughs> she, they're tracking now, buddy. Well, where's the drip come from? Otherwise, yeah, like, I'm, I'm only. Come on, there can be drips in caves. Connect the dots. I'm only referring to the uh, the prologue. The first line, she says, uh, "We knew nothing of the watery mass surrounding us." Anyway, uh, and that makes you ask, well, what do we really know? We're not so different from the people of Hive, cocooned in our relatively isolated corner of the universe, and constructing narratives that keep us sane in the face of the fact that we're all barely clinging to the surface of a rock that is hurtling through space at breakneck speed, and then suddenly I'm rocking back and forth and weeping and wailing to my chihuahua. What is even real, Frank? Please just give me one little piece of cosmic wisdom and put me out of my misery. So I can see where it's unsettling. (laughs) I think that's why I found the book a little unsettling (laughs) at first. But it's actually a great story 
it's told very well and it's so different from anything I've read in recent times that I got to the end and wanted more. And it was only at that point that I realised that this, blessedly, is actually a two-parter, so there is more to come. Oh, no. <laughs> two-parter. Different to three. It sounds very giver-esque to me. It, it is a little bit giver-esque in that culty kind of fashion I, and the denial of what the world really is and the extent to which that runs through this society is kind of questionable, but it, that element is definitely there. What's the likelihood that it is actually going to be a two-parter? Because quite a few books have been popular recently and the authors have gone, hmm, I started as a trilogy, but now I'm going to make it a 15-part series. Like, what's his name? Yeah. I think Brent Weeks or maybe it's Brandon Sanderson. Maybe it's both. I think it's Sanderson. <laughs> He's like, hmm, I sold a few books. If, if I wrote 10 times as many books, I could make 10 times as much money. Yeah. So he's got like book one of a three-part series times 10 books, you know. Yeah. He's got 10 different series on the go. So is, do you think it could, or maybe like the Hobbit film, it could just, you know, stretch out a little bit. Yeah. Look, I don't know. I feel like it's relatively well planned. And going back to the uh, prologue there and starting the book again, I see that the, the narrative art for this book is very well established and I can see the cutoff point and where uh, book two is foreshadowed. So I, sure. I trust AJ Betts. I, I trust her implicitly to stick to her word and make this a two-parter and not to keep us all waiting for 15 years. Uh, so... I don't know. We'll see. But I hope it would happen. Four stars. That's really good. Sorry, Larry. Did the book distinguish itself enough from things like, what was the name of that book with the, the colours that come in eventually? The, yeah, the Giver. Yeah. And maybe The Maze Runner and any of those kind of books that... And the M. Night Shyamalama Ding Dong, as you would say, Larry. Uh, what was that movie? <laughs> the Village. Yeah. yeah, I haven't seen it. I mean, it had elements of The Village and The Giver, uh, for sure. But uh, as far as The Maze Runner, there's no comparison. I thought this was much more finely crafted. And it really it really did unsettle me. I found it really uncomfortable throughout. And it was such a unique, vibrant setting. It really, whilst, whilst it had those elements, it wasn't, I can't say that it was exactly like this or exactly like that or the other. It, it was sufficiently differentiated that I felt like I was reading something that I hadn't seen before. And I, I really got quite invested in it. And I'm, I'm looking for, genuinely looking forward to the second part of the series. Even if I have to go out and drop a dime on it, I would be quite happy to do so because it's got me, it's got me pulled me in. I like it a lot. Did it feel like the, the main character was developing into more like being like us? No, I don't... Or, or It's tough. She... Was she already and... Yeah, she, she was already, I guess, hiding things from the society that she's in because she has these headaches and these headaches are potentially a symptom of going insane and she has seen in the past that people have... Of being divergent. Gone insane and being dragged off and, you know, they come back and they're just um, kind of zombie-esque. So she's already hiding things. She's already subverting the system a little bit, but she is super naive. She doesn't understand anything about the world outside this system that she lives in. And that progression is very slow. And, and that's really what the book okay. is about, I guess, is really discovering more about 
what is the, the underlying structure here? What are the truths that underlie the, the, the grand lies that have kept this society functioning in the way that it functions? And making some connections with other people as well. There, it, it has some of the... I don't know. I don't know whether to, to call it YA romance stuff is accurate because I wouldn't necessarily call it romance, but there are some you know good, rewarding, interpersonal bits and pieces in there as well. Does the Australian author come out in the characters like is it is it vaguely uh australian in nature or is it just a a neutral or yeah i think unlike the silent invasion which was very australian it's very australian in voice this is much more neutral it's kind of that uh that standard sci-fi setting i guess in that it could be anywhere at any time with any nationality of people there's no real way to sort of discern it I don't know whether that sure. will change in the, the second book, but in some ways I think it adds to the whole cultish kind of element of it. It's very insular. It's not really connected to anything outside. Yeah, okay. Am I right in thinking that AJ Betts has done quite well internationally with previous books? AJ Betts has previously written Zach and Mia, which I think has done quite well, but I don't know what the... I I don't know much about it. I haven't done enough research about AJ Betts. All I know is Hive is good. How old is it? Hive? Mm. Uh, This is is brand new. This is one from... It it came out, I don't know, a month or two ago, I think. Okay, sure. Zach and Mia has been made into a US TV series. That's... Well, had this vague sort of recollection of something. Yeah, yeah. So, got a, a little bit of a pedigree. I think that's the best way into mass fandom is that cross-platform attack on people. Yeah, yeah. And I think we talked to James Bradley a little bit about whether that's a in consideration when you go in writing. And I, th- I think he said not really. You just sort of do what you what you feel comfortable doing, what you want to write, and hopefully people connect with that and i think people probably will connect with both of these series that i've talked about i have a game to to cap off uh the evening now that we've uh we've covered the books and this has gone a little bit longer than i anticipated it would but anyway that's all right you can cut about 20 minutes of my 25 minutes talking (laughs) (laughs) uh this is a a game show Welcome to uh, Australia's favourite game show, Dystopia, where Keith and Laurie <laughs> are going to battle us out for uh, a pool of prizes that you know, pro- probably isn't going to be particularly impressive. I hope it includes Tony Barlow's menswear. <laughs> <laughs> so my two contestants are going to be uh, vying to be crowned ruler of the wasteland, where a horde of subjugated rats will carry out their every whim. Contestant number one is Laurie, who enjoys cycling watercolours and burning books in the fashion of all his favourite fascists. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have Keith, who's in training for the apocalypse and spends his weekends flailing around with a stick in his backyard, which he has called Eternia. (laughs) Uh, The rules of the game are pretty simple. I'm going to give you some clues, um, which you will use to identify a dystopian film, book or TV series by name. So I've I've got three clues for each of these. Uh, And if you're able to guess it on the... First clue, I'll give you three points and then deduct one point for every uh, 
clue that you need thereafter. So if you don't get to the third clue, you only get one point. Um, I have uh, I have six questions. Uh, does that make sense? Are we both vying for each question? You are both vying for each. What do you want to do? Should you both vie for each? Oh question? no, the old buzzing battle. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like if you're both vying, if you buzz in and get it wrong, you don't, you're out, and you don't get another opportunity on that question. How how does that sound to you guys? That seems fair. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, all right. Question one. Uh, so, feel free to to buzz in at any point with with our name. Yeah, or or you can do like a dystopian groan of a, um, a, a beggar longing for water in a stark wasteland or, or just your name <laughs> whatever you want okay okay I need to get into character first wait a second <laughs> <laughs> this film was neither happy nor did it have an overt emphasis on feet which could be considered a departure Going once, going twice, no, no takers. No. Could, you, could you read the clue again, please? I can read it again. This film was neither happy nor did it have an overt emphasis on feet, which could be considered a departure. Oh God! So some this feels like to happy feet, but what is that? All right, Sh- shall I? Uh, shall I go to uh, question two? It feels a bit like uh, what's the name of Walt Flanagan's game? Uh, dyslexia. <laughs> dyslexia. <laughs> the, I should say the clues uh, get progressively easier. They're pretty. I made them f- fairly vague for the uh, the three pointer because you'd have to, you know, really go out on a limb a little bit to to call it. The second clue. Uh, this production. This is the same one. It's the same uh, film was almost derailed by a rare lush spell in the Australian climate and production ultimately shifted to Namibia. I can't believe neither of you have buzzed Beep this. Beep oh. <laughs> Laurie? I'm taking a wild stab here at Mad Max. Ah. Yes, Mad Max it is for two points. Yes! Can you go through the original clues as well as the third clue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this film was neither happy nor did it have an overt emphasis on feet, which could be considered a departure because George Miller was previously doing Happy Feet before he moved on to Mad Max. Obviously, and obviously kicked off well. with Mad Max back in the day. Yeah, and he did Babe as well. Was almost derailed by a rare lush spell in the Australian climate before production shifted to Namibia. I think we had quite a bit of rainfall and the outback where they were going to be filming was too green. And so they had to move to Namibia to get the uh, sort of apocalyptic desert look that they wanted. And the third clue, which I would have been very disappointed if you hadn't buzzed in on, was uh, it saw Tom Hardy take on Mel Gibson's iconic road warrior role. So Laurie, Laurie with two... Question two. <laughs> I feel like maybe I've made the initial ones too hard now, but anyway. No, we're just a bit dim-witted. <laughs> this film... Slight, slight irradiation and a lack of clean water will do that to us, though. Right, Keith? Right, right. Keith? Right, yeah, well, if, right. If you win, you can call on your subjugated rats to ferret out some stashed water bottles for you. <laughs> this film starred Strider and a shopping trolley. Beep boop. Oh, have you, have you got it? 
I do got it. I just got to remember the name. Oh. Oh, God. Oh, no. Uh, uh, You better internally start a countdown. I have a countdown. The road. Oh, I'm going to take that just in time. Three points for Laurie. The road. Um, The road. Starring Strider on a shopping trolley. So um, Aragorn um, slash Viggo Mortensen was the uh, the main character playing the man in the road, uh, wheeling his... A uh, little shopping cart around uh, the apocalyptic world with his son. Um, that was a bit easy. <laughs> I'm so glad you got it because I wouldn't have got it from the third clue because I've not seen it. <laughs> oh, or read it. Or read it. The second clue was it uh, featured a man and his son steering clear of a lot of dirty-looking cannibals. Oh. <laughs> and the third clue was based on the Pulitzer-winning novel by Cormac McCarthy. Uh, all right. Laurie with a commanding lead at this point. Five zip. Question three. Uh, Babies can be hell, but it's their absence that has precipitated this dystopia. P.S. It's not children of men. Oh, what? I think Keith got in. I think I got in just as you were saying it's not children of men. Uh, were you going to say Children of Men? I was going to say Children of Men. Would you want to have a crack given that it's not Children of Men? But I wouldn't have buzzed in in that scenario. <laughs> I know what it is. I mean, you might be, <laughs> you might be, you, you best take a stab, Keith, because I think Laurie's going to steal it I'd, out from under you. I can't switch my attention away from Children of Men, so Laurie, it's all yours. All right. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale? It is The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> Laurie, Laurie on eight, Keith zero. I wish I could display this amount of aptitude in the rest of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Why couldn't it have been Children of Men, though? Come on. That would have been a nice curveball from it not being Handmaiden's Tale. Yeah, well, maybe, but I don't think that far ahead. I thought my little disclaimer that, Pierce, it's not Children of Men would help avoid confusion and like stop you from going off on the wrong track. <laughs> but, you know, apparently it didn't help. Uh, the other clues were uh, the adaptation shows that Peggy Olsen really struggled after moving on from advertising. And the third one was, this was a 1985 novel by Margaret Atwood and a recent TV series. Question four, and Keith, you really need to, I mean, unless you can get on the board very soon, you're going to be in trouble. Look, I think it's only fitting because only one of us has a fantasy of controlling subjugated rats and (laughs) it's not me. (laughs) All right. This schlocky film... This classic schlocky film, I should say, explores sci-fi tropes whilst delivering a 50% extra side of breast. (laughs) I think Keith got it. (laughs) When you think you've got it all, you've got Total Recall. Yes. Totally recalling. It was Total Recall. Obviously, I didn't make the first ones hard enough because you're all smashing them very early. Based on a Philip K. Dick short story, it focuses heavily on the nature of memory and human experience and how technology might disrupt them. And for one point, it was stars Arnie on a sojourn to Mars. Uh, Obviously, had the classic um, three-breasted woman in. That was why it had a 50% extra side of breasts. Yeah, as soon as you said that, both Laurie and I, (laughs) (laughs) fond childhood memories were revived. (laughs) Fondled childhood? Wait, no. (laughs) All right, number five. This is our second last question. You're in with a chance, Keith, if you can clean sweep it. 
Before you move on, did the remake have three breasts? I haven't actually seen the remake. I the, I, I cl- have, but I don't remember. Mm, I surely you couldn't cut such an iconic element in. Well, I'm in not a sure remake. they had the mutants at all. I really don't recall. Maybe anyway. Question for further research. <laughs> <laughs> question five. This 2009 sci-fi film explores racism and xenophobia. Keith. Oh, very early. You're not even going to let me get through the... Uh, what What are you, you going to go with, Keith? I'm going for District 9. Oh, man, he's pulled it out of a hat. The, <gasps> this 2009 sci-fi film explores racism and xenophobia through seafood-based slurs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, the, the prawns. Um, prawns. <laughs> Set in Johannesburg, directed by Neil Blomkamp, involved the settlement of a bunch of aliens derisively labelled prawns. So, Keith, ah. this is now... I mean, we could, we could end up with a tie. Um, I hope we don't. Question six. This film certainly wasn't trash, but that was its area of expertise. Keith. Ooh. Oh, no. No! <laughs> Keith. For the win. Wally. Yes! No! The <laughs> victory. Nine points I'm in a back, row. baby. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm very impressed. Focused on consumerism and the immeasurable waste produced by an increasingly helpless race, the trash compactor was the star of the show. Wally. Um, Laurie, that was an embarrassing performance after coming out strong. <laughs> oh, I'm so sad. It's a bit of rope-a-dope. Stay on the line and uh, we'll put you in touch with our rat supplier. <laughs> oh, Laurie can have the rats, it's okay. <laughs> Meat. That's all we have for tonight on this special interim episode of Seeking Tumness. Next time we're hitting the milestone of 50 episodes and jumping back into our usual format with my pick, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. <gasps> dum, 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 dum. Until then, come find us at Seeking Tumnus on Twitter, Facebook, and SeekingTumnus.com. And please throw us a couple of stars on iTunes. And by a couple, I mean five, and no less than five. And remember, (laughs) if you're questioning whether you're part of a crazy underwater cult, maybe a change would be good for you anyway. And keep reading. Hang on, I'm burping. What's the likelihood? It, what's the likelihood? It's actually. Go, I better start again. What's the likelihood? It's actually going to be a two-parter. <laughs>